From the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society at the Hagley Museum and Library, this is Stories from the Stacks. Each episode, we share new discoveries in the history of American enterprise and its impact on the world, made by researchers using our collections. Oh, my name is Manuela Scarpellini. I'm a professor of history at the University of Milan. And this is not my first time uh, here at Hagley. I was, have been there three, four, maybe five times, I don't remember. And every time is a sort of discovery to me. <laughs> and this last time was, uh, I had this goal to search about and find out the history of Avon. This Avon company, which was so important in the historical, in general, in the history of consumer culture. Um, and I have to um, say that basically I'm a historian of consumer culture. So I'm particularly interested in this kind of materials, also because my impression is sometimes that the political history and even the economic history, I mean the big histories, sometimes do concentrate even too much on big schemes, structures, uh, economic trends, and forget a little bit people. And so while if you think about consumer culture consumption, you have to think to consumers, to people, to the final user who are people, I mean, with all the problems or the different identities and cultural needs and whatever. So I think that um, studying, for instance, Avon, in this case, an industry related to our idea of beauty, could be very interesting to find out even our ideas of beauty and our identities and how they change over time or whatever. So here in Hagley, there is this huge and wonderful collection of the Avon Company, and particularly interesting because, well, there is a part on the general history of Avon, basically from the beginning, uh, so Avon USA, and the development, the transformation of a small, I would say, pharmacy <laughs> uh, to a big industry. And then there is another second part on Avon International, which is very interesting. In this case, I could find a lot of uh, catalogs, um, trade journals, and propaganda leaflets and other materials. And these are about, almost, uh, I wouldn't say all the world, but from Latin America to Europe, Eastern Europe, and then uh, China, and then Japan. And, and so you have a, a very good idea of the problems, of the challenges of selling a, a product, which is so linked to cultural, you know, ideas and cultural, even stereotypes, to different countries. And I concentrated also in particularly to the case of Italy, uh, not only because I'm Italian, this is a, so, but also because they <clears throat> decided to concentrate the production in Italy after a while. 
So the, that was particularly interesting because they started um, with a build, building a, a big plan. At the beginning, it, it worked basically for Italy and some other countries around. But at the end of the, in 30 years, let's say, in the mid-90s, the, the production was exported uh, for 90%, 95%. So basically, it covered all Europe. On the other side, there was the problem of marketing. And here we come back to the cultural, <coughs> our cultural <laughs> identities and problems because one of the things I, I noticed is that in the first catalogs, you have usually a very clear image of the American woman, so to say. And again, this is a stereotype, but it's back and very strong because it's back, for instance, by the Hollywood, you know, um, popular culture, the famous actresses or famous movie stars or, um, that were well-known in Europe, of course, because of the movies, because of the magazines and the photographies and so on. And so there was this kind of, you know, what, what we can call in general thing of American uh, beauties. And this kind of stereotype, this concept of beauty could be, was at least uh, quite different from what could be a Mediterranean beauty, for instance. And so what I found out is that in the very first catalogs, you can find mostly models probably coming from, from America, probably the same models used for the American catalogs, used almost everywhere. And you can see the development, in particular during the 60, late 60s and 70s, and we know, <laughs> we know why, of course. And then you can see appearing more and more local people. Normal people, I would say, not models, not super models, uh, wonderful people, but normal, nice um, uh, women defined as usually housewives, students, or employees. So the message was more and more you can be a nice woman, caring for your family, but also caring for yourself. And this was an interesting message. And be yourself. So you don't really need to be a supermodel. You, you can't be anyway. And so I found this development very interesting. And my third point, is that a, a particular role was played by the so-called Avon ladies. Well, we all know that when we find the materials into archives, these materials produced by, you know, executives, <laughs> employees, and maybe under the supervision of the, the I wouldn't say the CEO anyway, the, the most important people in the company, which we are talking about the 60s, 70s, we, they were, these, these actually were males, of course, and they were men. And so the idea is that sometimes um, the, the company images, the company image is formed through this material, at least what, what is left. 
but I tried to find out in this case using oral interviews to these Avon ladies and sometimes to consumers what were their images of Avon. And what I discovered, and this was a little bit surprising, but not that much, is that Avon ladies played a major role there. And they also were able to negotiate somewhat the, the image of the company that they received from, from above uh, using their own tools, so to say. For instance, uh, telling their consumers, their friends in many cases, that this was a good product for them. Forget the Hollywood superstars, this is good for us. So they were able to create an image of normality in beauties that was more acceptable, definitely, by the, this kind of consumers. And they were, it was very clear to them that the company proposed an image, a high image, so to say, and that was useful because it was a reference to the United States. We were in the forefront. We were pioneering even in the uh, world of the, the beauty industries. But at the same time, they were able to negotiate this image and translate this image to the everyday reality. And so I think that was particularly important. And sometimes we lose this action made by, you know, simple women, but probably the key of success of this company. I would say that there are two main reasons. One could be internal to the company, and, the, and this is even ladies. Because executives in, in the loan over time, they were convinced that they were important because they were very close to the final customers. So they were even eager to understand what was going on. So my sense, even if I didn't find any report <laughs> stating that, well, this is a change really due to the Avon ladies, um, uh, we have some report fr from the Avon ladies that they were able to change some, some kind of, you know, material, some kind of presentation, whatever. At the same time, we have to think that we are in a particular moment. We're talking about the late 60s and 70s. So we are in the mid of the, you know, the young revolution. And so uh, it, it also this, of course, pushed very uh, a lot toward a change in this kind of a little bit formal image of Avon. So I think that the two things combined together, the social movement and the internal push toward a different image of the Avon consumer, uh, they, they work together very well. So I found that the Avon case is particularly interesting because in, in this case we have a sort of pre-globalization effort. We are talking about the 60s, so we are talking 30 years, let's say, before the, the normal, <laughs> the real globalization. But it was very clear in their minds that when they moved away from the U.S., they need to rationalize uh, at most their, their efforts. So they decided from the very beginning to concentrate their production. And they started in Italy, and in northern Italy in particular, probably also because of low costs there. 
but then they had um, good results from even from workers from the from the market from the logistical uh, organization around it and they decided to uh, put more and more production in it so the th strange thing is that at the beginning we had the production basically not only but basically in Italy then we have in the first time the marketing section in London for Europe then there was a sort of different path because the production remained concentrated and we can talk even talk of a mass production for, for them but the marketing moved to uh, different countries. In this case, they moved from in this case from London to Paris, but also to Italy, because they they tried to focus more and more on specific targets. So it's quite interesting to see this divergent path: yeah. mass production from one side, but um, segmented marketing from the other side, which is something very modern and I would say a pioneering approach to, to the market because we are talking about the 60s now. Yeah. Well, they, they want to, began, they, to become a big, big company and they moved to, first to Latin America and then to move to Europe and then they moved to, to the to Eastern countries. So the idea is that they could be a global company because they sell something that could be appreciated by in, in many countries and by many also different cultures because the, they, they were very convinced that their idea of beauty not a striking beauty not a, but something normal something related maybe to the average housewife with a family with a man uh, that could be something that could be sold almost everywhere. Talking about the catalogs, well, at the very beginning, there, there was a difference between the US catalogs and the international catalogs in general. International catalogs were usually thinner, less color, less uh, glossy images. Probably they were an effort. They were, they were looking and see what was coming out of the then they become more and more important they were i mean even like you know fashion magazine more or less they become they have um, uh, many pages they have also um, the, um, a section well the, the the main section was of course uh, for for women then then had um, a new section for specifically for for the family for children, for instance, and then for men, who gradually <laughs> got some place in there, although, uh, you know, also always a very limited place, and then a phallic section for the home, mm, textiles, uh, home products, and whatever. So they became something very serious and important, and they were particularly important to the consumers, but also to the evil ladies, because it was the main tool to, to sell their, their items. But it's also interesting that I found out a section of pictures related to the, to the beginning of the, uh, the Avon company. And they decided to have a picture of every product that they have. They are wonderful pictures, small bottles, 
wonderful uh, boxes with you know a lot of um, decorations, very old style. Something that we would like to put <laughs> somewhere in our home, not even now. So it's very interesting that we have also a sort of um, a proof, a sense of the material culture, even the packaging, the bottles, the glasses, the the boxes, whatever. They uh, have a, a picture for every item. So that could be useful for even for art historian or for the history of packaging. And of course, the first uh, bottles, we are talking of real bottles, maybe small bottles with everything, uh, a lot of words in it. This is a perfume. You can use this <laughs> in the evening and in the morning. A lot of the direction and instruction because maybe you were not accustomed to use this kind of mm, perfume, soap or cream or whatever. And then, but very, um, a lot of light colors, light blue, cream, white, of course, the colors of, you know, of uh, beauty and the color of hygiene as well. It's very clear the message that they sent. Mm. And of course, then the, it became, the, this product, this packaging became more sophisticated, more more colors, more um, references. Um, so the object that we, we know now today. In this case, we have, uh, as I said before, we have this uh, idea of a mass product. So basically the same products for everyone. Sometimes even the instruction in the, in the product were remain in English in, for other countries. That was considered a sort of, you know, guarantee of, you know, high quality because they came directly from the USA. <laughs> For instance, I found many interesting observations and even inspiration in the Dichter collection. Dichter was a famous uh, advertiser. Maybe it's it's not defining the man. He was a psychologist, basically a motivational psychologist, as he, he wanted to be called. And uh, he was you know, very smart, and he really studied the beginning of the consumer culture. And sometimes, within his reports, I found incredible observations that could be, I mean, useful, that could be written today. So it's incredible that sometimes uh, you can find this kind of, you know, small thing that can help you to understand a big problem. And in this case, for instance, I found that different things in, in the Dichter papers, unexpected because I was looking for something else. At the beginning of the 60s, could be 62, 63, if I remember, and he was talking ab about the revolution in the youth um, clothing in a sense that it really surprised me because it was saying that it's time to tear apart the the gray suit, traditional suit, and in his mind, the the fashion, the, the clothing could be really a sign of identity and the young people were setting their way to the future. So and for something written in, in the beginning of the 60s, I found this really, really interesting. Mm. In the Avon collection, you can have 
materials and products on the marketing uh, section, uh, photographies, as I said, uh, even product photographies. But there is a, a bug, there's a, an important part on the on corporate, you know, materials. And of course, they were the, the real base of my research because they could describe even in their rough figures, in their rough data sometimes, the evolution of the, of the company. Um, sometimes I remember that there the was, there used to be, maybe there still is, I don't know, a sort of um, corporate meeting once a year sometimes uh, describing or commenting the result and the general situation and that was particularly interesting because in that occasion you could find also um, in this meeting speeches not only from the CEO but from many the, um, the, the people in charge of marketing in charge of international branches and so on and you can really have a sense of what was going on in, in the company so sometimes well we have the idea that this kind of corporate documents are a little bit you know gray and <laughs> and not that interesting but it's not completely true if you have the time and the patience to go through <laughs> Well, you know, as a historian of consumer culture, I can find a treasure here. <laughs> Every time I, I come, I can look for something different. The experience in Italy, as I use it as a case study, was important because, in a sense, they were really the pioneer of the mass market for beauty. And so this was an interesting experience because the Italian women were not accustomed to buy a lot of cosmetics because they were very expensive because of cultural bias and other problems and they were able to create somewhat the, the base for a mass market for the for the beauty products um, assuring that buying perfumes or creams or whatever was not <laughs> a problem for a for a good um, housewife and that was particularly very important so I think that was the, the experience that they could could have been used or maybe they used even in other contexts thank you for listening to stories from the stacks for more information on the Center for the History of Business Technology and Society and the Hagley Museum and Library visit us online at hagley.org that's h-a-g-l-e-y dot o-r-g